Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So we're closing our series this morning on the chief end of man. Uh, And if I could just give you a very brief reminder, we are grabbing that idea from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, And what we had done is as we introed this whole sermon series, we really brought it down to Romans 6.11 when Paul says that we should be submitting the instruments of our bodies to God unto righteousness instead of to sinful desires, right? And so the idea is that we should be submitting the parts of our humanity, what makes us human, what God created in the beginning, right? Being a human isn't wrong, it's sacred. Sin just corrupted us. And so the Bible calls us to take those beautiful instruments that God created and to be submitting them unto God for righteousness. And so Uh, We kind of broke that down into four different parts, being the heart, the mind, the affections, and the will. And so what we're doing today is we're funneling all that down into this final point, being the will. And I know maybe some of you are like, can you rebrief me on the other things? We'll get there. But I just want to let you know where we're going to go is we're going to see how all these pieces, listen, they are separate, and yet they all work together. In other words, you cannot be submitting one without working to submit all four. That's our goal. And so today, I want to talk about the will, and I want to show how all these things are going to work together to where our will, our will will not properly be submitted to the Lord unless our hearts, mind, and affections are as well. And so let me say first off what we're not going to talk about when I talk about the will. I'm not going to give you a bunch of things on things you should be doing, right? Uh, I know a lot of us, when we think about the will, we think about what should I be doing. Uh, and I think that's, that's applicable. The will does. But it's more than just doing. The will, is, the will goes far deeper than that because our will, our want, has to do with our desires. It has to do with our choices. And that drives a willingness to be doing. It drives a willingness to be doing. And so when we look at the will, we also have to look at the character of the person. You can never just look at the will and not the character, right? Because we talked about this this last Sunday. How does God want us to serve him? Enthusiastically and with joy. That's a character trait. God's not just saying, I want you to begrudgingly do what I tell you. He wants us to do it with love and excitement and enthusiasm for him and for what he's done for us. We should be serving him in that way. And so understand when we talk, I'm not not saying go and do your job while you hate it, right? I want you as a person to be excited about who God is and that drives you to be living out what God has called you to live out. And so if I can be very blunt with you for a minute, I don't think any of us in this room need to know what to do better. I think what we need more than anything is character. We know what we're supposed to be doing. Oftentimes the problem is just that we don't want to do it. A friend of mine had told me at one point, he said, if you think about an infant, right, what do you never never have to teach a child? You never have to teach them how to do bad. They know how to do it. 
right? What do we have to train a child into all the way through life? We have to train them toward good. It's in our instincts to do bad. And so the first thing we want to look at is the character, the heart, the mind, the affections, and that'll drive out the will. It'll drive out how we live our life. And so what I want to look at for this, uh, for this topic, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is a, this is a prayer from Paul uh, for the Philippian church, and this is what he says. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day Christ returns. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now I want to I break that down into three parts. That's going to lead into two more, but three main parts. Uh, I want to I look at ultimately what is Paul praying for us, being he's praying for our love, he's praying for our knowledge, and he's praying for our understanding or discernment, right? And so the first and primary request that Paul has in his prayer is for our love. First and foremost, Paul's praying for our love. That is something that cannot be overlooked. It cannot be overlooked. Love is a necessity. It is an absolute must. It is a required character trait for any Christ follower. Any, right? Jesus himself taught it. John 13, 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, if the world outside the non-believing world looks at you and does not see love, there is no evidence that you are a Christ follower. None. Because you look exactly like them. We're first and foremost required to love. And so Paul's first prayer is for our love, that it would be abounding, that it would be overflowing and growing more and more and more. But you should ask a question, Paul, love toward whom? Right? Because some of us are going, yeah, love toward God. And then others, you're going, oh, love toward people. And I'm going to say this, yes. Love toward both. It better be. It better be love toward both. Listen to what John says. Two different passages in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He doesn't say God has love. Is. He's the very origin of it. As an off-reference, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John says, what manner of love is this that the Father has for us? In the Greek, that's an, that's an odd wording. What he's actually saying is, from what planet does this love come? It's not, it, it doesn't have its origin here on our, on our earth. It's something very different. It's otherworldly. It's alien. And if we come to know that love that comes from only God because he's the very origin of it, then how can that love not also be overflowing to our brothers and sisters? John says very clearly, if you don't have love for others, then you don't know God. 
Look at what he says in First uh, John 4, 20 and 21, just a little bit after that passage. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. John's blunt enough to say that if you do not love others, you do not love God. You can claim it all you want, but it just makes you a liar. I think this also begs another question that we have to ask. Okay, Daniel, so do I only have to love my Christian brothers and sisters? Remember, I believe it's in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, check my notes. Luke 10, Jesus shares a parable because he had just reminded everyone of the, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And do y'all remember what one wise guy comes up and asks? Okay, Lord, who's my neighbor? Right? Let's talk about that really quickly. So Jesus shares a parable that we call the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. Right? Where a Jewish man is walking uh, down to, I believe, Jerusalem, gets beat up and mugged and robbed, and they leave him pretty, pretty badly bruised up in a ditch. Uh, and the first person to walk by is a priest. Right? First century, uh, one of us <laughs> walks by and looks at the man beat up and bruised, and he's like, ooh, and he kind of keeps doing his thing over to the side. Behind him comes a Levite. The Levite looks at him. Keeps on going, got business to handle, don't have time for this. And then who comes along? According to a first century Jew, a Samaritan, which would have been the scum of the earth. Samaritan comes along, looks at the guy beat up in the ditch, picks him up, loads him on his own uh, donkey and hauls him to an inn, pays for everything for him to stay and be taken care of and then says, I gotta travel to another town. When I come back, if anything extra has been given, it's on my tab, I got it, let's take, let's take care of the guy. Jesus says, who really loved their neighbor? A Samaritan would not be considered the neighbor of a Jew, but an enemy. Love goes toward your enemies as well, because as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, what makes you any different if you only love those who love you? Anyone can do that. It's entirely different when we even love our enemies. So Paul prays first and foremost for our love, but then he follows it up with something that I think is really interesting, and honestly, this is a much easier one for me, uh, knowledge. Paul prays for their knowledge, that their knowledge would be growing and overflowing. And that's a pretty common prayer for Paul, that, that he would pray for people's knowledge to be growing. And that's, that's kind of a, uh, uh, a dicey topic in our culture because we're a very pluralistic society. In other words, we just think more on the lines of we should just love and not really worry so much about the knowing. It's a very popular thing right now to say things like we should just build on loving one another or we should just build on community. We should just build, and then doctrine is out the window. Let me just say this really quickly. The Bible is very clear that you should be very concerned for doctrine. You should be very concerned for biblical knowledge. Otherwise, we'll just make up our own definitions of what truth and love are, right? We need an objective standard for which love exists. Otherwise, we just form our own little idols. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. These are believers. And then he says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's prayer to the churches was often for their growth in knowledge, that they would come to know God more and more and more. We are commanded to have the knowledge of God and of his will. We're commanded. Think about this for a prime example. How many times in the four Gospels that Pharisees and Sadducees and all these different people that would have the Old Testament memorized would come up to Jesus randomly and they go, teacher, tell us, blah, 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 what should we do, right? They'd always have this question where they're trying to trick him and it always had to do with what God's will really was. You remember how Jesus always first responded? Have you not read? Jesus expected them to know this book and not only know it, but know how it's supposed to be applied. Have you not read? Paul says this in Ephesians 5, 17. Do not act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. You know what's interesting about that? There's a, there's a very clear contrast right there. You can act thoughtlessly or foolishly, as some translations would put it, or you can know the will of God. Foolish, know the will of God. And what's most interesting to me is Paul is actually commanding that we know the will of God. And that's a, listen, we're in a hyper-spiritual culture also, where we have this weird thing where we're like, until God reveals it to me, then I don't know what to do. And so we have this weird, we kind of build this, this system where it's like, I go by if I have peace, and if I don't, I'm like, dude, if, if that's what's instructing my life, I don't know where I'm going to be next week, Right? Because I promise you today, 46 times I'm going to have peace about something that then later I'm not going to have peace about. It's a weird thing when we allow our feelings to guide our heart. Now, is there room for that? Yes. But it should not be the primary litmus as to whether we're walking in the will of God. You say, well, how do we know then, Daniel? How are we supposed to just know the will of God? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. You know what that means? There's some stuff that just isn't your business. But then listen to what Moses says. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. There are some things in the will of God for your life that just do not belong to you. They're up to him. Your job is to trust him. But there are other things that he's revealed very clearly to you. Your job is to know it and to do it. And you'll be held accountable for it if you don't. We're called to know God and to know his will. And it's very clearly written in this book. And it's very interesting to me. Because we've really got three enemies against that. Uh, sin, Satan, and self that are always looking to distort that, right? Always looking to distort it. And we can blame the devil, right? He comes along. What did he do with Jesus in Matthew 4? He used scripture, twisted it out of context, tried to make it mean something it didn't. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's just, that's a common thing for him, right? 
uh, I, I don't know what your idea of Satan in the demonic realm really are like, but I promise you he's far less concerned with spooking you, and he's way more concerned with deceiving you. That's what he's all about. The Bible calls him the father of lies, not the father, father of jump scares, right? He's trying to deceive you. He wants to plant tiny little seeds of deception that maybe right away don't lead you down a, a wayward path, but 10 or 15 years down the road. You're so far from the knowledge of God and from reflecting his glory that it's unbelievable and how do you even get back? His main goal is to lie to us and we even see the outcome of it. Uh, one of my favorite little passages in the entire world, one of my favorite chapters, Romans chapter one. Verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who in their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth of God. Sin, Satan, and self is always looking to bend and suppress and shut that voice of God up so that we can pursue self. We need to know God in his word if we are going to walk in his will. We need to know it. And we need to know it very clearly. That's why I believe Paul says in Ephesians 6, that we have the sword of the spirit, which is the what? Word of God. The word of God. What is a sword? It is an offensive weapon. It's also a defensive weapon. One of the best weapons you're gonna have on the field is a sword. And Paul says we have it in its God's own word. It, it works defensively as we believe it, and it works offensively as we attack. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, like newborn babies, you must crave, crave the pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have tasted of the Lord's kindness. You're not only commanded to know God's word, but to crave it. And some of you are like, well, Daniel, I don't. And so here's what I would say. If that bothers you, which it should, then pray that God would give you a hunger and a craving for his word. Paul prays for our love. He prays that as we grow in love, we would grow in knowledge. And then thirdly, he prays that we would grow in discernment or understanding. Synonymous words. To have discernment or to have understanding is the ability to, to know right from wrong. It's the ability to discern right from wrong. But it also goes far deeper than that. It goes far, far deeper than that, actually. Uh, because there's a lot of things biblically that are not moral absolutes. There are a lot of moral absolutes but there are things that aren't, right? You're not gonna pick up the Bible and it's gonna tell you what career path to choose. It can definitely tell you what categories of careers not to choose, but it's not gonna tell you what job to take. It's not gonna tell you if you should shop at HEB or at Kroger. It's not gonna tell you necessarily who to marry. There's a lot of things that the Bible's not gonna be very specific in telling you, but understanding and discernment helps you to navigate even the gray areas in life. And so a lot of you guys, listen, if you're a believer, you've already got the conviction of the spirit that helps you to discern blatant right from wrong. 
But in those gray areas, it's so important that we continue to grow in these things. Because we want to be able to identify the difference. We want to be able to identify the difference. Paul says in Romans 12 too, he says, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What do we need in order to know that? We need understanding. We need discernment. We need to be able to grow in those things. But how do we get it? Right? How do we get it? How do we grow in it? Well, let me just say this. It runs hand in hand with knowledge. They're not going to be separated. They're not going to be separated. Uh, One of my, I feel like I say this about everything, one of my favorite verses also in Scripture because of not only, listen, not only how it applies to me in my private life, but how it also affects everyone that I have the opportunity to preach. Listen to this, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You know what the literal word is there for exposes? It discerns. It discerns. But look at what it's discerning. Look at what it's exposing. Your innermost thoughts and desires. In other words, it's going deep down in there. And it's sifting through and it's shining light on evil motives, right? Here's what I can promise you about myself. I have one of the greatest abilities on the entire planet to bend any situation for my own glory. Anything. Legitimately anything. But praise God that he gives us his word that if read rightly, If diligently sought after, it goes deep into our hearts and it discerns our thoughts and our intentions. It exposes things that we've been trying to hide. It shines light in the deepest little crevices of our hearts and of our minds. And it leads us into this path of righteousness. But it's so important that we be growing in the knowledge of God's word. We need it because we live in such a dark and influential culture. It is unbelievable. It's unreal how saturating it is to our mind. We need God's word for discernment. Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist says this, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Why would he need a lamp and a light unless he were in a very dark area we need his word that we would grow in discernment let me just say this God has provided you everything necessary for you to grow in love for you to grow in knowledge and for you to grow in understanding everything necessary and so when we grow in those things what happens according to Paul he says that that we would be filled with the fruits of our salvation In Philippians 1, that's what he says. That if we're growing in love, that if we're growing in knowledge, and if we're growing in discernment or understanding, that we would be producing a life full of the fruits of salvation. 
But what happens when we don't? There's a passage in 2 Peter. It's kind of a long one. I want to I set some context before I get to my passage I'm going to read. Peter starts explaining all these beautiful things that we have in God, that, that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that he's given us these glorious and excellent promises, that through them we become partakers of the divine nature, and we escape the corruptions of this world and its lusts. And then he goes on to say, because of that, we should make every effort to supplement our faith with and he goes through all these character traits, ultimately saying this, you have these stacks of character traits that we should be always laboring to be growing in, right? Kind of what Paul's praying for here, but a little bit more of a magnified list. Paul and Peter both want us to be growing in these things, but listen to what Peter says. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good thing, right? That's what we want. But, contrast word, but, those who fail to develop like this, they are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their old sins. You know what he's saying, man? If you know your Old Testament well, he's saying you're like Israel. You just got freed from the most oppressive slavery under Egypt. And you've been led out, and God has provided miraculously time after time after time for you to see his power, for you to see his paternal love, for you to see his salvation and his faithfulness. And then at some point, because something didn't go the way you wanted, you said, you know what? I don't even like this whole thing. This is ridiculous. Uh, let's raise up this guy. Lead us back to Egypt where everything was way greater. At least we had food there. At what cost? forgetting what God has brought us out of to bring us into something far greater. The greatest dilemma we have, I've, I, here's what I know, I've got no more than two types of people in this room. I've got people whose hearts, to some degree or another, are in alignment with God's will. And I've got people whose hearts are not at all. Romans 8, 7 says that the natural man or the sinful nature is hostile toward God's commandments, that they can't, it cannot submit, right? So if we're yet to be a Christ follower, if we've yet to be born again, stepping over that line into our faith journey, then we're still hostile toward God's will. And if we're a believer, if you're a Christ follower in this room, you still have this part of you, this residue of that old sinful nature that is still saying, man, I see that, but wouldn't this be far greater? Wouldn't it be better, Daniel, if instead of getting up there and preaching this thing rightfully, let's sprinkle in a little bit of awesome Daniel in there. Let's get them all to praise you and see how great you really are, right? Is that not Satan just offering me the world? You know the beauty of it? In all of our ignorance, in all of our hostility toward God's will, in all of our absolute refusal, let's just think for one second. God speaks to the oceans, and he says, you rise this far and no farther. 
He speaks to the mountains. He says, you come this high and no higher. He speaks to the stars. He says, your expand and your heat will be this much and no more. And they all obey him so perfectly. And he speaks to us and he says, come. And we say, no. What audacity. What audacity. But praise God that in that garden in Gethsemane, as Jesus Christ was sweating blood in absolute terror, not because he was about to be crucified by Romans and beaten and scourged, but because he was about to bear on himself omnipotent wrath. What does he say? Father, not my will. Oh, if this cup could pass from me. But not my will be done, but yours. Why? You see, Jesus, Jesus followed the will of God all the way to his own separation, all the way to his own death, though he was undeserving, having no sin of his own because we were completely unwilling to submit our wills to God. Christ followed it all the way to the end. If you believe that, why wouldn't you be making every single effort? Why wouldn't you be making every single effort to see what your Lord has done for you what he's laid down, what he's denied, his own well-being. And do you understand of, all the, of, of, every, of every human to walk on the face of this planet, if anyone had any right to go, you know what, no, I'm not going to that cross, it was him. Because he took the cross all of us deserve. But in love he submitted to the Father's will all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because we would have refused it. And so in that death, he atoned for our rebellion and he made us right with God. He brought us back into right relationship with him. So what's the outcome What's the outcome for us according to this passage in First Philipp- or, or Philippians 1? If we're growing in love, if we're growing in knowledge, if we're growing in understanding, then we're producing the fruit of salvation. And then Paul says the outcome is this. This will bring much glory and praise to God. What was the, what was the, the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul says, listen, if you're growing in these things, the outcome is going to be that you glorify God and you bring him much praise. That's the reason you exist, is to do that exact thing. So we've offered you a sort of a blueprint, sort of a blueprint into that. But understand this. I told y'all I wanted to show you how all the pieces fit together, right? So let me do that now. We have to guard and embrace what Christ has done in our heart. We have to, 
right? That's the first thing we have to do is guard and embrace what Christ has done in our heart. Why? Because initially your heart was hostile toward God. But what Christ has done through his work on the cross and through the giving of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's made our hearts new. Not improved. He didn't come in and clean up some dirty areas. According to Ezekiel 36, he removed that old heart and he gave you a new one. Embrace what he's done in you. Embrace the change of the heart. But then secondly, feed and fuel your mind in the truth of his message. Feed and fuel your mind. Jesus says in Matthew 15 that from the heart come evil thoughts. In other words, you could remove the word evil and just know this. From the heart come thoughts. If he's given you a new heart, then your thoughts have changed. Feed that with anything and everything possible. There's this list, and I don't have it memorized, otherwise I'd just quote it. But in Philippians 4, when Paul tells us to think on whatever is good and honorable and lovely and pure, and he goes through all these things, what's he saying? Fill your mind with those things. Meditate on them. Think through them. How would it, how would it impact your day? What would it look like to live that out? Fill your mind with it. I come from a background of fitness, and here's what I can promise you. The best performing athletes in the world are fueling their bodies with the best nutrients. Fuel your mind with the best thoughts. Thirdly, Fight daily. Fight. 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 Daily. To excite your affections for Christ and his kingdom. Now I emphasize fight. Because Philippians 2, Paul says we should work hard to show the results of our salvation. Work hard. In other words, it's, it shouldn't be easy. If you feel like you're passively floating through it, you're not working hard to show the fruits of it. Work hard, fight daily to excite your affections for Christ and his kingdom. Now here's what I can promise you in regards to the will. You're doing all three of those things, you won't even have to remind yourself of the will because it's just gonna follow. It's just gonna follow. When your heart is completely behind the person you love, when your mind is enveloped with the thoughts of them, and when your affections are so excited just to be around them, they don't need to tell you how to please them. It just naturally happens. All of it funnels down to the will. All of it. But don't forget, God commands us that we serve him with enthusiasm and joy. Please do not lose sight of all those other points and walk through this life like an emotionless robot just checking off the to-do list of Christianity. All those parts should be filled and aimed toward the Lord to be filled with him. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you that we're so beautifully and wonderfully made, so complex above all other creation. And that even when sin shattered us, you came in Christ and you restored and you renewed. And so, Father, I am asking you for the praise of Christ that not an ounce of his work would seem to have been in vain for the hearts, the minds, the affections, and the wills of all of us in this room would be so raptured in your glory that it would be a contagion to the rest of this world. That it would be so obvious, Lord, how many of us are the only Bibles that people will ever read. Father, in spite of us, bring glory to your name through us. We are not worthy to be your vessels, but you are so merciful and so gracious and so loving. You have called us to such a high calling. God, let us see nothing greater. So open our eyes to your glory, that this whole world would be ruined to us in comparison. And that our love would shine forth your glory to an unbelieving world. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.